Today's reading is taken from the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 72, verse 4. So we read from chapter two, um, Psalms 72, verse 4. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. That's our reading. Thank you. Well, I don't think I'm done crying yet today. Manu. Oh, my goodness. See, Manu's mom came to know the Lord in this church on the soccer field. Well, someone invited her to church, and they met on the soccer field, and she came to church, and she just come to church here, and she got involved in all kinds of things. And one day I, I mentioned to Manu's mom, Margie, I go, Margie, you've done steps two and three of the faith, but... Is it okay if I tell the story? Okay. <laughs> You've done steps two and three of the faith, but I don't think you did step one yet. <laughs> and so uh, she prayed with me to receive Jesus Christ. And she was our church secretary for a while, and she had a baby named Manu. And I used to hold Manu as a baby um, while her mom did the typing. <laughs> and so I've known Manu her whole life. Um, are you 18 now? I forget. Kind of like, yeah. And... Uh, that's the most I've ever heard her speak in 18 years. <laughs> Manu, thank you. And, you know, um, it's about the next generation and the generations to come. We're just seeing that. It's so good. What, what a testimony. What a testimony. Well, will you pray with me? Lord, we are the family of God which means we're related to one another by blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are blood brothers and sisters. We are family. You are our Father. We praise you. We worship you. We love you. We thank you that you are stern with us and give us discipline as a good Father. We thank you that you are comforting and caring as a good Father. We thank you, Lord, that you teach us, you guide us, you care for us, provide for us like a good father. We want to be good children. We want to be obedient. We want to be loving. We want to be kind. We want to be good. We ask that you'd speak to us today as your children, minister to us by the power of the Holy Spirit to do that miracle that you can do and speak to every single heart through one simple message and one simple preacher. You can speak to all of us. We ask you to do that this morning. We ask you to speak to those who are not in this room and who might be listening online. Some are serving you as missionaries in this state, on the mainland, around the world. We ask you to bless them. Some have gone off to school. Others have been deployed. Some are ill. Some have just wandered away, and we ask you to minister to them. Lord, may we leave here being better people. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I want to thank Pastor Josh and Pastor Tom for filming the pulpit while I was gone. Great job. I listened to both those sermons online. And by the way, if you haven't, yeah, give them a hand. Great job. Thank you. The year was 1994. I was pastoring the International English-Speaking Church in Athens, Greece. And the congregation actually had two different 
physical locations. I'd preach at two locations on a Sunday morning. The Uptown Church was in the wealthy suburb of Athens, and the attendees were largely diplomats and people who were in charge of foreign companies and things like that. That was a wealthy congregation, mostly white faces. The downtown congregation was a larger congregation. It was a poor congregation, and it was made up of largely Filipino domestic workers, as well as East African domestic workers, as well as a smattering of Middle East refugees who came to the church. There were a few white faces in that congregation. So you probably didn't know, I actually used to be the pastor of a Filipino church, and actually was a pastor of an Ethiopian church too, you know, and did Ethiopian weddings all the time. Had no idea what was going on, because it was, wasn't in English. <laughs> the ceremony lasted three hours. The reception, I don't know how long it lasted, because I always left at midnight, and they said, we haven't cut the cake yet. <laughs> But I was pastoring those churches, and one of the things we did, because we had so many needy people in our church, is we opened a food closet and a food pantry at our church, and people would come by, and, and that's when I first met this family. It was a father, a mother, young couple, with a little three-year-old. And the mother had a scar running down the center of her face, and was missing her front teeth. They were from Rwanda. It was 1994. And they told me about the horrific genocide that was going on at that time in Rwanda that they had fled from. The wife had been attacked with a machete, which slit her face open and knocked out her teeth because she was a Tutsi. Her husband was a Hutu, which meant their little girl, Tatiana, a three-year-old, was a half-breed, so their own family members were trying to kill her. And so they fled from Rwanda and came to Greece. It was the president of Rwanda who was, in 1994, in a private plane. He was a Hutu, and he was shot out of the sky, assassinated. The plane crashed, and everyone aboard was killed. No one knows who the perpetrator was, but because of that, an all-out attack against every Tutsi in the country of Rwanda started taking place. And any politically moderate Hutus who tried to defend the Tutsis also were massacred. In a hundred days, it's estimated that more than one million Tutsis and moderate Hutus were slaughtered with clubs, machetes, and other ways that are too gruesome to even talk about, and included men, women, children, and babies. And the Western world looked the other way. President Bill Clinton, who was the President of the United States in 1994, would later apologize for his failure as a president because he looked the other way. It was out of that genocide that this family came to our church. I remember every Monday when they'd come, the husband and wife would be looking at clothes and food, and the little three-year-old Tatiana, I would chase her around the office playfully. 
she was at first scared of this big white man, but after a while it became a game and it was kind of a fun thing looking forward to her every Monday when she would come. I left Greece in 1999, and when I left, I gave Tatiana's father my suits, my tailor-made suits, because I figured I wouldn't need them when I came back to Hawaii. I gave him whatever clothes I had that I wasn't taking with me because he was about my size. I lost touch with them. Fifteen years later, I happened to be back in Greece, and I visited the church, and this beautiful 18-year-old African girl came up to me, and she said, I'm Tatiana. I said, how could you possibly know who I am? You were three years old. That was 15 years ago. And she said, my parents have never stopped talking about you. I had forgotten about Rwanda, which now is a peaceful country, until a few months ago I was invited by two organizations to go to Rwanda, a country I'd never been to before, though I've been to Africa many times. And I was invited by World Relief Organization, which is a worldwide organization, and also a small organization called Leverage Leadership. And Leverage Leadership trains pastors, and World Relief trains people in how to become self-sustaining. And I thought it would be helpful for me to go there, so I went there, and here's a, a slide of Rwanda, if I can get it. There it goes. Okay. I'm ahead of myself. There you go. In case you've forgotten where Rwanda is, <laughs> there it is. It's one of the smallest countries in Africa. It's about the size of Maryland, and yet it has twice the population of Maryland with about 13 million people, making it one of the most densely populated nations on earth. Due to the genocide of 1994, 41% of the population, 41% is under the age of 15 years old. The median age of the country is only 19 and a half years old. The median age of our country, by comparison, is 37 years old. 70% of the population are farmers, subsistence farmers. In other words, they're so poor that if they want food, they have to grow it, and what they grow is what they eat. The average income of the country is less than $2 a day. While I was in Rwanda, I ran across Psalms chapter 72, verse 4. And I'd like to read it to you, and I realize that it's written about a king, and it's a psalm of King Solomon and about a righteous king. But as I read it, it was so appropriate because of where I was. And it's amazing how God does that, doesn't he? That you are reading, and maybe you're reading your daily reading, and what you just need to hear that day just so happens to be the reading that you have for that day. And if that's never happened to you, you haven't been paying attention. Psalm 72, verse 4, may he vindicate the afflicted of the people. Well, Rwanda is a nation of affliction. No one in that country has escaped affliction. No one. Everyone has a story, if they're still alive. Save the children of the needy. Save the children of the needy. 41% of the population is 15 or under. They're children. 
and crush the oppressor. Crush the oppressor. What is the oppressor in your life? What is the oppressor in their life? In your bulletin, there's an outline. We have three action points for ourselves because this isn't just a travel log about Rwanda. It's about our lives as well and what we can learn. And in your bulletin, there's an outline. If you're listening online, it's under the PDF icon if you click on that. But the first thing I want to talk about is poverty. Wherever it is, let's crush it. Let's crush it. This verse says, crush the oppressor. And one of the great oppressors that I saw in Rwanda is poverty. When I get to preach, sometimes Josh or, or Taylor go, crush it, you know? And that kind of means, you know, do a great job and everything. Well, I'm taking back that phrase, and I want it to mean crush it, that we're going to crush the oppressor, whatever the oppressor is in someone's life. Let's crush it. Let's get rid of it. Let's obliterate it. Let's crush poverty. Rwanda is located just slightly below the equator, and yet it's colder than Hawaii. And the reason is, is the entire country, the lowest part of the country of Rwanda, is at 3,000 feet. Where we stayed was at 5,000 feet. And from 5,000 feet, then we went higher up to a village to see what World Relief was accomplishing. And we went up 5,000 feet, and that's where we started seeing all kinds of tea plantations. And in Rwanda... Wherever there isn't a building, there aren't that many buildings, wherever there isn't a building, there's something planted. They plant all the land and the hills and the mountains and everything is planted. In fact, you've seen banana plantations here, but there when they have a banana plantation, they plant underneath the bananas, they plant beans because they're using every available piece of property. Well, we went up to this village and... Emily, who was our Rwandan guide, told us that morning, she said, we're driving, uh, I think it was three hours or something like that, and she said, it's going to be really cold when we get there. And our Rwandan guide, she has, you know, a whole scarf wrapped around her neck and sweatshirt with hoodie, and she's all bundled up, you know. And, and so I had four layers of clothes on. You know, that's everything I brought from Hawaii. I mean, that's a T-shirt and a, and a flannel shirt and a sweatshirt and a windbreaker. And we drove up to this village, and it was cold. It was 14 degrees centigrade, <laughs> which is 58 degrees Fahrenheit, which for us from Hawaii and Rwanda is freezing. I noticed the team members from Pennsylvania and Ohio had short sleeve shirts on. I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> But here I am bundled up. You'll see some of the kids there. They're bundled up as we are walking the dirt road to this village. And who knew that when you got to Africa, you'd start seeing kids with fur-lined hoods on because it's so, you know, 14 degrees centigrade. You know, and I love this one. This beautiful little girl obviously got good use out of her parka. But it was in this village where we met Vistine for the first time. And Vistine is a 26-year-old single gal, soon to be married. And she lives with her parents in a mud hut. As I didn't go through the mud hut, but I think it probably is typical with only two rooms. 
and there are five children in the family. So seven people living in this house. Two of them have now married and left. But there's no electricity. There's no heating, and it is cold. There's no running water. No lights. Vistine earns about 65 cents a day picking tea. You saw the tea plantations. This is up near those plantations. And she has been taught by World Relief through a program called Savings for Life, which is amazing. Taught to save, even though she makes 65 cents a day. And Savings for Life, SFL as it's called for short, has about a dozen people in a community get together. They have a metal lockbox, which has a padlock on three different sides, three different locks, three different keys, three different people have a key. A fourth person holds the lockbox, and in that, they come once a month with a passbook, and they put money in, they put their savings in this lockbox. And they can put anywhere from what would be equivalent to us, like a dollar to ten dollars. So either a day's wage or more than a week's wage, they can put in this lockbox. Also, when they come every month, they have to contribute what's equivalent to ten cents that goes to a social fund. And that social fund is to help their neighbors. In this lockbox, then, the money's locked, and the people put their money in, about 12 of them, and they save, and they do this for about nine months. But people can take loans from this lockbox if they want to buy a sewing machine to start a business. They're like microloans. Or if they want to buy an animal and be able to have more animals and things like that. Or if they need to buy farm utensils. And there's a very high interest rate on the loans so that people will pay them back. And they've discovered that there's only a 1% default on these loans. Well, Vistine got involved in this, and she was able to buy a pig. And she got a female pig, and her pig had piglets, three of them. So she has quadrupled her investment, someone who just makes 65 cents a day. And she told us that after we left, she was going to buy a cow, which is a $250 item. I don't know if she'd save that much or whether she's taken out a loan. I'm not sure. I just know that she has been empowered. She has been giving a hand up, not a handout. No one bought her the pig. No one bought her the cow. She did it herself, and she only makes 65 cents a day when she works. She is crushing it. She is crushing poverty. That was impressive. Well, we visited other Savings for Life groups, and one of the things World Relief does that is brilliant, they do many things that are brilliant, that everything they do works out of the local church. So when you go to these Savings for Life groups, they're meeting in the local church. They're started in the local church. The people felt really good about the local church. The local church is helping them. Well, we went to another Savings for Life group. We met in a church. We had a group of, of ladies there and a couple men. Most of them were women there. And they're giving their testimonies. And one of the ladies told us that even though they were meeting in a Protestant church and most of the other people were Protestants, she was Catholic. And what had happened, she was in the hospital and the Savings for Life group used their social fund 
to buy food and to make food and bring hot food to the people in the hospital. And this lady was one of the people in the hospital that got fed. And so she, when she got out, she joined the Savings for Life group and joined this group. And we have Catholics and Protestants working together in the church to help other people. It was beautiful. Another lady told us that she had been extremely lonely. And we discovered this is a major problem in Africa that these women are alone, their husbands have gone off somewhere, maybe another village or town or city to work. They're all alone. They're hoeing the ground. They're farming. They're trying to keep their family alive. They have a baby on their back. They have a toddler or two running around them all day outside while they're hoeing and farming, and they're lonely. And she said she joined the Savings for Life group, and one of the beautiful things is now she had friends. She had companionship. She came once a month, and people asked her how she was doing and how her life was and how her investments were, and there was community, and it was in the church, and they shared. It was beautiful. When you crush poverty, that's something to celebrate. And I'm going to show you a very short video of a Savings for Life group, and after they shared their testimonies, they celebrated. excited are you about crushing poverty? I mean, it's so good. Poverty, whatever it is, let's crush it. One of my reasons for going to Rwanda is to kind of figure out what our next step is as a church in East Africa. Many of you know that we have had a a huge footprint in Uganda, a little bit in Kenya. We have built at least, and helped build at least four schools, high school, primary schools, uh, we, we built a church in a Muslim slum that can seat 800 people, and we know that because we had 850 people in it one time. <laughs> we drilled a well for a village of 10,000 people in, in Kenya. We have sponsored for more than a decade about 300 orphans and disadvantaged children. We've seen them grow up, go through... Uh, primary school, secondary school, university, get jobs, get married, and have children because of what you've done. For over a decade, and we're still doing this, we are feeding the poorest of the poor in a Muslim slum, and they, we are providing for their primary school and feeding them on a daily basis. You've done that. But that's the past. And one of the things that I heard through... Pastor Dale, who I was traveling with, he quoted one of our Dallas Seminary professors that we had, uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks, a well-known, famous professor who's now with the Lord. And Dr. Howard Hendricks said this, very insightful. He said, when your memories are more exciting than your dreams, you've begun to die. That's true. And we have exciting memories of what this church has done, But we need to dream bigger dreams. 
My daughter Taylor has already personally been dreaming big dreams, and she went on a mission trip with our church to Uganda. She's made um, a private trip to Uganda twice, getting ready for a third sort of private trip to Uganda with some of you. And she went there, and she has already helped drill two wells in a village, and she's empowered an impoverished mom living in a mud hut to open a store and sell clothes and now be able to provide for her family and send her children to boarding school. And Taylor's leading a team in December to see what more they can do. It's amazing. What are you dreaming about? We want to dream big dreams. And we want to crush poverty wherever it is. We want to give a hand up, not just a handout. Now, when you go to Africa, it's easy to see the poverty. They don't have clean drinking water. They might hike miles to get water. They don't have a balanced diet. They have trouble getting food. The food they grow is very starchy. They need proteins. There's a problem with food. There's a problem with malnutrition and disease. There's tetanus and typhoid and Ebola virus and malaria and hepatitis and dysentery and the list goes on and on. It's easy to see. That poverty is easy to see and we can crush it. But what about the poverty locally in Kailua? We live in an affluent society and yeah, you can find what you would call a poor person. They are not poor by world standards, but they're poor by our standards. But that's not the majority of Kailua. East Africa, the poverty is of the body. In Kailua, the poverty is of the soul. And that's what we need to crush. You see, in Africa, they have disease of the body. In Kailua, we have disease of our character of our soul. We have moral disease running rampant, and we need to crush it. In Africa, they don't have clean drinking water. In Kailua, the need isn't clean drinking water. It's living water, and we need to crush it. We need to crush poverty, whether it's of the body, which is obvious when you go to East Africa, or whether it's of the soul, which is the problem in our community. Now, there's a tradition in Africa I want to teach you. It involves difficult words, but I think you can get it. In Africa, when I say hallelujah, you say amen. Let's crush poverty of body and soul. Hallelujah? 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 They say it three times because they're serious about crushing poverty. And I want to see us crush it in Africa of the body and Kailua of the soul and make a difference. World Relief, they're doing the Savings for Life. They're doing some other things. The other organization I was with was Leverage Leadership. Pastor Dale Burke started that. He um, was a pastor of a large church in California. You probably never heard of his name, but you probably know the person that he replaced. He was a pastor that replaced Chuck Swindoll at E.V. Fullerton. And he was a pastor of that church of 6,000 people. And now he's moved on to a smaller church in California. And he is going all over Africa training pastors with principles on leadership. 
And he's doing an amazing job, and he wanted me to go because he said, I think you could teach this in Uganda. He has a presence all around Uganda, but not in Uganda, and we've had a presence in Uganda, and we have the venue, we have the contacts, we have the people, and he said, I challenge you to be the one who could bring this teaching to train uh, pastors in Uganda who then train other pastors in areas of leadership development. I sat through his seminars twice. He's got a three-day seminar that he can teach in three days, two days, and one day, depending on how many breakout sessions, and I sat through it twice, and there was some really good stuff. It was really an impressive time. And I was reminded while I was in Rwanda that the church is not a building. The church is you and me. In Rwanda right now, there's a government regulation that is shutting down churches all through Rwanda. And the purpose of the regulation isn't to shut down churches. They're not anti-church. The purpose of the regulations are to keep people safe because the buildings aren't safe. And so they have new building regulations, and the churches don't meet those building regulations, and so the churches have to shut their doors until they can meet those regulations. So where do the people meet? Where does the church meet when it doesn't have a building? Because the church is the people, not the building. So what's happening in Rwanda is churches of one denomination are sharing a building with churches of another denomination, and we're meeting pastors who are coming together, and their congregations are coming together, and they're working together because there's only one church, because the church is the people. The church is not an organization. It is an organism. And the question is never, why doesn't the church do something, even though people say that? The question is, why don't I do something? Why don't you do something? We are the church. The church isn't a building that's filled with spectators. The church is a building that is filled with activists, which brings us to our second action point today from Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, 13 tells you why you were set free in Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, set free in Christ, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. It's not about you, in other words. Your freedom is not about pleasing your flesh. It's not about doing what you want to do. You're not free just to please yourself, but through love, serve one another. The reason you've been set free in Jesus Christ is to serve other people. And so here's our second action point. Church, that's you, that's me. Wherever you are, hop to it. Hop to it. Do something. I thought I'd illustrate it. I'm hopping to it. That's church. Hop to it. I didn't know how to get out of it. Once you're hopping, I didn't know what to do next, so I just kind of hopped off the stage. You know? <laughs> but I thought that would help you visualize do something. They did something in a church in Africa that I thought was brilliant and simple and certainly effective. It was called Every Man Sunday. And in that church where I preached, the service was three hours long. I was really tired, you know, I mean, jumping and dancing and moving, you know. And, and uh, then there was this, the speaker who spoke before me. That was called Sunday School. 
Um, even though we never moved, that was a Sunday school speaker, and then I was a preacher, and I was at the end of the three hours, like, oh, great, great setup, the preacher, you know. <laughs> but um, what they had was every man Sunday, and every man in the church, and it was a church not as large as we have here, maybe uh, 50 adults at the most, and smattering of children, but it was every man Sunday, and every man in the church was supposed to bring a man to church that Sunday. And so what they said, and this may not work in our shy culture, but it worked well in their culture, they said, okay, every man who brought a man, bring him up here on the stage. And in that culture, it's their culture, many cultures are like this, it's okay for men to hold hands, in fact, men do hold hands, and so you see two African men holding hands, walking up to the stage, this is the man I brought today, and everybody is smiling, including the visitor who does not feel awkward, and the whole church clapped. And the church had doubled in size in one Sunday because every man brought a man. I thought, wow, that's brilliant. Peter brought his brother Andrew to Jesus in Scripture. Imagine if our church, if every person in the church just said, I have to bring a man or a woman or a child. Imagine if that was in our DNA. If we just, every time we met somebody, we thought, hey, this might be the one that I bring. Church would double overnight. It would double, it would double, it would just keep growing. If every person took it upon themselves to bring someone, hop to it. <laughs> you know, the Bible tells us that God reveals spiritual truths through creation. All spiritual truths existed for all eternity. They've always existed. They existed in the mind and character of God. But when God created, during the seven days of creation, he, he worked six days, rested the seventh. When he created things, he put spiritual truths in physical form, he tells us. And so we should be looking all around us for spiritual truth when you say physical things. And I want to show you a short video of something that's really amazing. And it happened right outside my van door on the ground. And I stopped to videotape it. And it illustrates partnership, working together. Get close to it. Common cause. Again, I'm working together. There's a sermon illustration. Those are dung beetles. The dung beetles. One of them's upside down, kicking backwards, trusting the other one. Rolling down. Actually, I think he's just rolling. You're going, what are they going to do with that ball of dung? Well, I'm told they plant their seeds in it and the babies grow out of it. It might be a mud beetle. But look at that partnership. Look out, guys. You're going to start moving fast. You know, this records audio, too, right? I know. That's They're all working together. Just, just checking. All working together for a common cause. I'm not going to say, just be a dung beetle. <laughs> poverty, where it is, let's crush it. Poverty of body, poverty of soul. Church, wherever you are, hop to it. The third thing I want to talk about is from Colossians 3.13. It has to do with forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, everyone in this room has a complaint against someone. It might be the person sitting next to you or the person who should be sitting next to you. It might be a complaint about the person behind the pulpit. We all have a complaint about someone. And he says, whoever, that's pretty broad, has a complaint against anyone, that's pretty broad. 
just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. A third point this morning, gleaned from my trip in Rwanda, is this. Forgiveness, wherever it's needed, just give it. Wherever it's needed, just give it. As I mentioned as we started, Rwanda is a nation of genocide. Over one million people estimated were slaughtered. How do you overcome that? How does a Tutsi not retaliate against a Hutu? (coughs) How does a Hutu live at peace with what they did or that their father did or mother? How does a country survive that, let alone thrive? And Rwanda has one of the fastest growing economies in Africa. It's thriving by Africa standards. What's the answer? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there was no hope for a better future for Rwanda. I remember while I was there, I I talked to a man who was about my age. It's difficult to find older people there because they've been slaughtered. And we were talking, and I said, to be honest with you, my heart's made the same thing as everyone else's heart. I can understand hate. I can understand doing things that you wish you never did. But I don't understand your forgiveness. I don't think I could forgive someone slaughtering my family. And he said, it's been the work of God in our country. Forgiveness is the work of God. And God is working in that country, and people are forgiving one another. And you say, well, I could never forget what that person did. Well, forgiveness and forgetting are not synonyms. When you look in the mirror every day and see a scar down your face, you're never going to forget that. But you can forgive it. Forgiveness means you let go of the past and you move forward. Forgiveness means you don't retaliate. You don't work out of revenge. You let it go and you move forward. You may not forget it, but you let it go. All through Rwanda, you see this. Never again. They're not forgetting. That's a church outside our hotel. That's a glass case with the skulls of some of the people, some of the thousand people that went into that church thinking it would be a sanctuary, and they were slaughtered in the church. Those are their skulls, there are bones, their graves are out in front. 11,000 people were slaughtered in that one little town. Many of them fled to the stadium. They were told, run to the stadium. They ran to the stadium. Over a course of two or three days, they were all slaughtered. Rwanda says, never again. They're not going to forget, but they're going to let go, and they're going to forgive. And everyone in this room has someone they need to forgive, and they need to just let it go, just give it, give them forgive. They don't deserve it. Well, of course they don't deserve it. Just give it. Just give it. And because of forgiveness, a whole new generation of Rwandans are growing up without hatred. They're letting it go. 
They're giving forgiveness, and forgiveness gives birth to beauty. Forgiveness produces new life. Forgiveness offers us dreams of a beautiful future rather than staying in the past horror. I close with one more short video because it is Rwanda's future. It is the byproduct of forgiveness. These kids were running outside our van. The next generation, because of forgiveness, they're running toward a beautiful future. Because it's about the next generation and the next generation and what do you want to see in the future. Let's dream big. Poverty, wherever it is, let's crush it. Hallelujah. Church, wherever you are, jump to it, hop to it. Hallelujah. Forgiveness, wherever is needed, just give it. Hallelujah. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just respond to the Holy Spirit who's speaking to you? He's spoken to you. Would you just respond? Who do you need to forgive? Where do you need to get involved? Where is God leading you to be involved? Where is God leading you to do something to help someone else? Tell him your response. And maybe you're here and you've never embraced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You need forgiveness. You're not going to get to heaven without the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You're not good enough. If you want his forgiveness, all you have to do is receive it and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, save me, come into my life, and he will. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But from Psalm 67, 1 and 2, God be gracious to us. God bless us and cause your face to shine on us. Selah. Lord, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church. Have a great Sunday.